welcome to Primetime. This week, The Duke of Newcastle, Part 1, or a first episode for examining Thomas Pelham Hollis, First Duke of Newcastle upon Tyne, and for connected purposes. Hello, and welcome to Primetime. We're ranking, rating, and reviewing all the British Prime Ministers from Robert Walpole to the modern day. I'm John. I'm Rob. And I'm Cass. And today we are looking at our fifth Prime Minister, or as his friends knew him, Hubble Bubble. (laughs) (laughs) I literally have no idea. But this is genuinely his nickname. Apparently so. Okay, do we think he really liked bubblegum? Maybe he was really interested in the Hubble telescope. I think we need to pick something that was around in the 18th century. (laughs) Well, I can tell you what wasn't around in the 18th century, and that it wasn't a commentary on his weight, because he was apparently quite a lot slimmer than his younger brother. Oh, really? Oh, so it wasn't like he was bubble-shaped. Hubble-bubble. The Scion. The Duke of Newcastle was born on the 21st of July, 19... 19? 19 what? (laughs) The Duke of Newcastle was born on the 21st of July, 1763. (laughs) 1963. Not that long ago, so... Remember, we're calling him Newcastle all through this episode. It's a spoiler, but it's a lot easier than changing names mid-episode, which he does half a dozen times. Fair enough. (laughs) His parents were Thomas Pelham, 1st Baron Pelham, and Lady Grace Hollis. His younger brother, Henry Pelham, was born about two years later, and they also had at least six sisters who survived to adulthood. About whom we know absolutely nothing, presumably, other than maybe the men that they married. And yeah, the so when I say survived have. to adulthood, I mean they married, and therefore I know that they survived to that age. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's grim. And their mother unfortunately died when Newcastle was about seven years old. Oh, so a single, single dad. Yeah. Well, I mean, he he had married twice. And, you know, after you've lost two of them, they, they don't normally give you a third. <laughs> yeah. Like his brother, and also Lord Bath, Newcastle was educated at Westminster School and he went on to Clare College, Cambridge. Lord Bath was there about a decade earlier, but if you're listening to this wondering, did all the rich people who ran the country go to the same school? Then I would direct your attention to our website, (laughs) where we have an explicit list of who went to Eton, Harrow or Westminster, and it's more than half of them. If you are wondering, did all the people who run this country go to the same posh rich school and know each other? The answer is yes, they did. They were all related, and they all went to school together. They bullied each other. They played hockey. Yeah. And then they went on to bully each other in Parliament. Yeah, such a small little group of people, isn't it? Boys club. Well, Newcastle's father, Thomas Pelham, was a baronet and then a baron, but his most illustrious relative was his mother's brother, John Hollis, first Duke of Newcastle upon Tyne. Robin, what does it mean to say that John Hollis's title was the second creation? What this Ooh. means is that you can have titles that are hereditary, so you can be the first, second, third, fourth, baron, whatever... And then if eventually the title dies out because you run out of heirs, the title stops. But it can be recreated. It can be made again and given to someone else. But when that happens, you start the numbering (gasps) again. Okay, so this guy was the first Duke of Newcastle. And then this guy was also the first Duke of Newcastle. Yes, exactly. Just the first Duke of another creation of that title. That's so confusing. It is incredibly confusing. It is especially confusing. Also, the title had previously belonged to John Hollis's father-in-law... And after his death, John Hollis was then given the new creation of it, the second creation, by William III. So this is a title that has been passed around in a somewhat unconventional manner, largely because if you're incredibly rich, the rules just don't apply to you. They're still keeping it within the family, but just like not directly, and they have to just recreate it, even though it's still within the family. 
because it was because it technically died out because it was never directly inherited so it died out and had to be remade and given to another boy in the family exactly give it to the women well john hollis didn't have any direct descendants that he could give his money and titles to because he only had a daughter (gasps) yeah although to be fair he did apparently give her a significant amount of money okay fine i would take that But when he died in 1711, the majority of John Hollis's estate was passed to his nephew, our hero, Thomas Pelham, on the condition that Thomas changed his surname to Pelham Hollis, which he duly did. But that's just such a weird condition. I guess he wanted to pass his name on. So it's actually not that weird. Oh, okay. In fact, we're not so far away from the time of Jane Austen here. Okay. Can you think of an example in a Jane Austen novel where some girls are unfortunately unable to inherit? But yeah. somebody else is going to inherit instead. I mean, literally every... I mean, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice. Why does Mr. Collins have a different name from the Bennets? Because he's, he's like, not... He's not related. To- he has to be related through a direct line of boys. Otherwise, he couldn't be a better heir than the girls. Oh, yeah, what the hell? Oh, I've never thought about that. He must have changed his name, or his father did, which is possibly related to the split that he had with the rest of the family. And there's another example, which is Jane Austen's own brother... So her brother James changed his surname from Austin to Lee Perrot in order to meet the terms of his uncle's will a hundred years after this in 1817. Downgrade. Well, but he got a will out of it. Oh, yeah, yeah true. Where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> there's a Lee Perrot. That actually happened after Pride and Prejudice was written. So she didn't get the plot point from her brother. It was something that just happened in those <laughs> days that, that someone offered you a lot of money if you were to be their heir and you'd do it. You've got to change the name. And so that means that Newcastle was the scion of his family, do you want to say what scion means? I don't know what it means. Oh, the scion just means eligible son who's up and oh, coming and is going to... Sounds gonna... very Dan Brown. Sounds like we're doing an episode on like, I don't know, Tom Hanks is going to wander in and be like, <laughs> the Knights Templar gather around the scion. It's more like a, a notable descendant of a powerful family. It's the sort of the up and coming heir who's going to change the world and a big deal. Mm. Like a prince could be referred to as the scion of Austria or something if they were an Austrian prince, I suppose. <gasps> or Ludwig of Bavaria. <gasps> Treason. <laughs> um, it has an implication of being young. Oh, mm. Ludwig. He's only in his 90s. It's Franz. I've just remembered it's Franz. Fra- Damn it. Franz. <laughs> he's only in his 90s. Thereby proving Sorry, that Franz. we can leave this segment in because <laughs> people can't take you seriously if you don't even know his name. Franz, if you're listening. <laughs> I'm sorry. I meant you all along. <laughs> I love you, Franz. So, Newcastle was the scion of his uncle and also his father. And his father died a year later. So Newcastle was once again the primary beneficiary, adding more wealth and titles to his collection. Oh, man. So he's 19 years old, and his life thus far has been a torrent of wealth and power being sprayed directly at him from the older people who are just dying and giving him everything. I kind of get That's why. Incredible. What's his face? The other the other one. Henry. Like, yeah, Henry was yeah. a bit like, mm, this seems a bit... Do I only get a few million? Yeah, he's getting like 55 million. I I only get one, come on. Well, it's just getting started because that torrent isn't drying up anytime soon. No, I need to be a Duke of Newcastle in the (laughs) 1700s. At this point, his income was estimated at £25,000 a year by one book that I read. That's way more than Mr. Darcy. Four million pounds in today's money. A year. A year. And yet way more than Mr. Darcy would have a hundred years later. That's... Oh, That's yeah, he is. Damn. Yeah, Lizzie was certainly... I mean, £4 million a year, you could live in London for that. <laughs> Out of London. Yeah, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, not you like... probably couldn't buy a house, but no, you, know, no, no, you no, could like... rent. <laughs> Another book that I read estimated at 40000 a year. 
Is he single? <laughs> well, we'll get to that. But, of course, while this young, rich, powerful and well-connected baron was enjoying a fountain of good fortune, he was also launching a political career. Of course. Why? Just, you've got six million pounds. <laughs> yeah. I would be, tra- I'd be buying an island. I'd be traveling. I'd be inventing weird stuff. I'd be like just paying people to like make me weird things. Newcastle said himself, my natural love of politics and being concerned with the public world, both in town and country, will make a private life very disagreeable to me. Ugh. Oh. Basically well, said, I'd be bored. Yeah. Oh, come on. You, yeah, that's just a lack of imagination. Build a zoo or something. I mean, you've got literally <laughs> unlimited money. Wouldn't you space? rather that the wealthy and powerful actually set about to try and do something? No, I'd like them to do just ridiculous stuff with it. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> Cass is here for the show. That's yeah. all she wants. Well, there was nobody going to space in the 18th well, but Yeah, because this guy could have spent all yeah. his wealth on space travel and instead he's just <laughs> faffing around. Buying bubble gum or <laughs> <Yeah>. something. <laughs> The Hanover Club. Newcastle and Pelham were raised as Hanoverian Whigs, and they took to this with gusto. They both joined the Kit Kat Club. Ah. Yeah. And in 1713, Newcastle helped to found the Hanover Club, which was a political society and fan club for the yet to arrive Hanoverian monarchs. That's really Oh, they haven't arrived yet. They hadn't arrived yet. That's oh, so wow. lame. You <laughs> say that, bit, but this pays off royally in oh, a yeah. chapter. I, or so. I bet it does, because they're gonna turn up and like be, be the monarchs in a minute. Yeah. Sucking up is an important part of yeah. all of this series. The Hanover Club yeah. though, I mean that's a embarrassing. The I Heart George the Future First Club. Yeah. Yeah. Although at that point of course it would have been Sophia the Electress of Hanover that they oh, were. That's of true. Yeah. That's cooler. In this capacity, he apparently funded roving bands of street thugs to go around beating up people who supported the Jacobites. Okay, when I was like, do some stuff with your money, this is not... I thought Kes was going to say street violence. That's just because they're coming for you, (laughs) Kes. Yes, yes, stop beating up the Jacobites. (laughs) Well, this proved very sensible because around a year later, Queen Anne unfortunately died and George I acceded to the throne as the first Hanoverian monarch. And he thanked Newcastle by creating him Viscount Pelham and Earl of Clare. He didn't have enough stuff. So he's working his way up. So he was a baron from his dad, Mm -hmm. the bottom rung. And then Mm. he's got a Viscount and an earldom. The next two rungs up. The next two rungs up. I think this might have been while his brother Henry was away on the continent. (gasps) Antarctica. Looking at penguins. (laughs) So he got nothing. (laughs) Oh, no. I could be wrong, though, because it's a bit vague, that timeline. Okay. Especially because we don't actually know how old Henry was. So Yeah, yeah, that's kind of awkward. George also made Newcastle the Lord Lieutenant of Middlesex and the Custus Rotulorum of Middlesex. The what? Ooh, what is a Custus Rotulorum? Lord Lieutenant is the head of the militia, the yeah. reserve forces, and Custus Rotulorum means keeper of the records. Just basically yeah. an honorary position that had just been kind of rolled into the Lord Lieutenancy. Interesting. But it's a nice title. It's a very nice yeah. title. We don't have any Latin titles left, do we? I feel like there are some that are probably, we think they're English now, just because we're so used to them. Maybe. Anyway, he was also Lord Lieutenant of Nottinghamshire. (laughs) Now, Custis Rotulorum may have been an honorary position, but Lord Lieutenant wasn't, because there was a Jacobite uprising, so suddenly the militia was rather needed. Yeah. Newcastle raised a regiment of soldiers, led at least in some capacity by his brother Henry. Oh, yeah, he was the gallant, wasn't he? And the uprising was quashed. George I was delighted, and although Newcastle had only been a minor player, Middlesex was actually quite important. So the king created him. Not anymore, him... but it was like at the time. Yeah. So the he? king created him Marquis of Clare, 
and Duke of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Oh, he's oh. gone right up to the top now. So he's got all five now. That is incredible. Yep. He's got to get extra points for that. He, he, we should give him a bonus point for having one of every single he's rank. He's not going to get any points for that because it's all happened before he became Prime Minister. Yeah, oh, course. no. Oh. However... George did eventually put a little ribbon on top and make him a Knight of the Garter as well. Oh, this is Ooh. so... Sh- oh, we've got to give him something for it. He'll get a point for the being a Knight of the Garter because you know. can't inherit that, so it doesn't matter when it happened in your life. But being a Duke helped him become Prime Minister, so we're not going to give him points for that. Yeah. Yeah, but he got all this stuff. Oh, He's he gets more stuff later as well. <laughs> the King seems to really have taken a shine to Newcastle. Well, yeah. <laughs> He's given him literally one of everything. So much so that you kind of get the impression that he was sleeping with the guy or something. <laughs> I mean, he's literally a George Villas character. Yeah. Can, I, can, I just, can I just say that that is, this, we as a podcast are endorsing this. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, unlike George Villas, Newcastle was already a baron in his own right. And he was exceedingly rich and an established member of high society by right of his birth. And he was also from an old and powerful family with all of the connections and privileges that that brings. The dukedom of Newcastle-upon-Tyne had already been handed down in, in a very similar manner once before. So it was actually kind of expected that it was going to show up eventually. Okay. In fact, he was a born and raised member of the tip-top of the British upper crust, whereas George was a new monarch from a faraway land who didn't really speak English. Yep. And probably saw this as an opportunity to get a future member of the already established aristocracy on side. Yeah, somebody yeah. who had already been pro Hanoverian, yeah. but was tomorrow's big leader. Tomorrow's uber Hanoverian. <laughs> but the king's patronage wasn't all roses, though, because each of the Georges has one absolute mortal enemy: their son the and next heir. One. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. In 1717, Caroline of Ansbach, the Princess of Wales, had a baby boy, Prince George William. The king insisted that one of the child's godparents be the Duke of Newcastle overriding the parents' own choice of the Duke of York, who was actually the king's brother, which is a bit odd, but he basically said, no, no, one of the godparents has to be British. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I pick this person. (laughs) The child's father, the future George II, was furious with Newcastle, and after the christening, he shook his fist in Newcastle's face and (gasps) shouted something like, you're a rascal, but I shall find you, except that he did it with a very thick German accent. Incredible. And Newcastle, unfortunately, misheard him, or at least we think he did, and thought that he said something like, I will fight you. Oh, my God. I.e. that it was an invitation to a duel. That is so funny. Well, why would he say, I will find you? I mean, I'm standing right there. I don't know. I also don't entirely understand this, because unlike George I, George II had actually taken pains to learn English by this point. This is amazing. This is a christening I would want to go to. This is a really dramatic christening. Unfortunately, George I took this as an opportunity to put his son under house arrest. Oh, (laughs) had him confined to his room until he apologised and took the newborn child away from the Prince and Princess of Wales. Oh, you can't do that. And then exiled them, essentially within London. But they actually even like wrote letters to the other courts of Europe saying, do not accept um, the, the Prince and Princess of Wales should they come a-knocking. I mean, it's really <gasps> quite awful. It's a huge split. Wow. But the child wasn't very well. Oh, no. And although George was eventually prevailed upon to let his own son and daughter-in-law visit their sick child, it was too late and the child had already died. Oh, my God. God. Little Prince George William. Oh, that's tragic. This is just one of many spats between King George and his heir, but it was a big one. Yeah. The rift would never be properly sealed, but it was around this time that Robert Walpole stepped in and effected a reconciliation between the two. Oh, my God. Uh... Becoming good friends with Caroline, 
in the process. Caroline of Ansbach, who had given birth to this woman. Yeah, of course, because Robert Walpole's looking ahead and he's thinking, do you know who's going to be in power next? That was a very important development in Robert Walpole's political career. Yeah. What is going to come after George I? George II. Well, at this point, we should do a quick shout out to Rex Factor because they covered Caroline of Ansbach and this event in their recent episode. They did. Also in 1717, Newcastle married Lady Harriet Godolphin, the wealthy daughter of Henrietta Churchill, second Duchess of Marlborough, and Francis Godolphin, second Earl of Godolphin. He was 23, she was just 16. Lady Harriet wasn't much interested in public life, but she enjoyed throwing lavish parties, which even her (laughs) husband's political opponents were able to enjoy. Shortly after their marriage, she unfortunately suffered a miscarriage, and after that there were no more children, although the couple did remain close. Outside of parties, though, any guesses as to what her favourite activities are? If I were a posh, obscenely rich woman in the 1700s, what would I be doing? Mm. There's all the stereotypical stuff about music and singing and art and... Music and painting are two of the four that I have here. Okay. Uh, Okay. Riding? Nope. Uh, I mean, maybe, but I have a very specific list of four activities, okay. and there's one particularly interesting one that I'm hoping you'll get to. Ooh, okay. Is it Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so what? what games? Chess. It was gambling. Gambling. <gasps> Ooh. That's not what accomplished young Sinful ladies are games. doing. She enjoyed music, painting, sewing, and gambling. <laughs> okay, music, painting, and sewing are absolutely three that yeah we should have guessed. Gambling. Oh. Apparently, she kept incredibly meticulous records. I say apparently because I haven't looked at them because genuinely you could fill a room with the paperwork that these people generated oh that we still have today. <laughs> but apparently her losses were quite small. She, oh. was, she was relatively good at gambling. <gasps> so she was, yeah, she was basically a stockbroker. I mean, essentially, she was an incredibly wealthy woman who was having a good time, but in the process didn't manage to bankrupt herself, unlike probably most of the other people who were doing it. Most of the other yeah. men who were doing it. Mm. Good for her. Absolutely. Back to Newcastle. As a lord... Newcastle didn't need to trouble himself with standing for election or campaigning for votes. That's for poor people. Yeah, he walked straight into Parliament and was immediately made a Privy Councillor and Lord Chamberlain. Oh, very good. Stop getting things! (laughs) Newcastle was actually interested in attending the House of Lords, something that not everybody else who had the right to was. He was also an exceedingly wealthy Duke, so he was automatically one of the more senior members. But most importantly... He was a friend of the King, and he was a member of all of the right clubs, so the Whigs of the day welcomed him with open arms. He was also sponsored into politics by Charles Spencer, the third Earl of Sunderland, to whom he was related. Of Uh, course. Of course. They're all related. Stop it. (laughs) Stop being related. You may recall that the hip-hop duo of Earls Stanhope and Sunderland (laughs) were dominating the charts in the early Hanoverian era. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Until they were cancelled for unwisely tweeting, which we'll get to in a minute. (laughs) That's We're not... so down with the kids. Now. <laughs> We're this cool. is a strained metaphor, John, but keep going. We have the modern vernacular. <laughs> so, Sunderland's first wife, Lady Arabella Cavendish, was Newcastle's uncle's wife's sister. Oh my God. Right. But his second wife, Lady Anne Churchill, was Lady Harriet Godolphin, i.e., Newcastle's wife's aunt. Right. Everyone yep. was related to everyone. <laughs> yeah. And also, the connection there was via the Churchill family. As in the Churchill family, Sarah Churchill. If anyone has seen the movie The Favourite with Olivia Colman, very good movie. I haven't seen it, but (laughs) I'm just going to say it's very good. You're going to have to watch it now. (laughs) (laughs) Historical lesbians, it's really my kind of movie. I don't know why I haven't seen it. But yes, they're connected via Sarah Churchill, who's the grandmother of Thomas Pelham Hollis's wife. Yep. 
who was, if you don't know, an incredibly powerful and fiery woman of the time. Very, like, politically active, like, very involved in political life. And actually, the first of our upcoming series on women that we're going to be running. We've kind of... Sorry, I'm going to need you to repeat that word again. What, what was that? You know how there are lots of men, yeah? And they all do, yeah. they do all the stuff. They're, they're the powerful ones. Yeah, yeah. 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 But the like ones sometimes, the just occasionally, there are these other people who do things. Who I aren't know. men. Who aren't men. Interesting. Hmm. I know. We should learn about this. We should. Yes. We how, do you, how do you spell that? <laughs> should we spell it the feminist way? W-O-M-Y-N. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we're actually going to do a, we're going to be running a kind of another series alongside our multiple series that we've already got um, <laughs> on powerful and influential and interesting women uh, and also just other kind of minorities and marginalized groups that we maybe won't have covered so much just to maybe diversify a little bit the fact that otherwise every single person is a posh white man who went to Eton. so yeah tune in tune into that episode which will be coming out in a couple of weeks and yeah we look forward to telling you all about sarah churchill mm. no i'm very excited for that because it was when I was doing this, literally drawing out the family tree to try and get the connections here about how they were related in two different ways via two different wives. But I kind of realized that it's the women who provide the glue that sits between all the families. Yeah, absolutely. They're kind of bartered in, in alliance sort of things. But that also means that they actually probably have a lot more power than people give them credit for. They do. And unfortunately, it's just that in a lot of cases there's just so little evidence left behind of that so little kind of paperwork and so little documentation but whereas people like Sarah Churchill who I think was very conscious of her public role because she's very close to the court from a very young age left behind copious sort of diaries and memoirs and also you know documentation and stuff as well so we actually have information on her so we can use characters these big characters like her and like you know the Duchess of Devonshire Georgiana and these other kind of big famous people to kind of then extrapolate what it would have been like to be a woman in these in these times so yeah we're looking forward to that should be exciting absolutely similarly Newcastle's half-sister the Honourable Elizabeth Pelham was the uh, first wife of Charles Townsend second Viscount Townsend yes one half of the up-and-coming no (laughs) one half of the up-and-coming hip-hop duo Walpole and Townsend who are making inroads into the uh, Whig party music charts oh my gosh (laughs) follow us on TikTok (laughs) (laughs) I'm just cringing listening to this. That's okay. I, w- I won't make any more references to hip hop. John okay, and Rob yeah. are going to be producing a special musical number. <laughs> <laughs> Newcastle's brother, Henry Pelham, was also keen to get into politics. So Newcastle just installed him in one of the pocket boroughs that he owned. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the books that I read suggested that this might have actually been what happened while Henry Pelham was on tour on the continent. After the Jacobite uprising, it suggested that it was in the opposite order, which does say a lot about Newcastle's ability to control the franchise, that he could have gotten his brother elected when he wasn't even in the country at the time. Yeah, true. <laughs> so funny. He wasn't even on the continent. <laughs> yes. in the, he wasn't even in the same hemisphere. Yeah, in the yeah. same hemisphere. Yeah, he was, he was off. Looking at penguins. Yeah. yeah. This is all we know about Antarctica. <laughs> There's ice and penguins. So we're going to cover ground here that's been included in every episode since Walpole. (laughs) So forgive me for covering the next few decades in brief. For more details, listen to episodes one to four. You need to stop promoting our podcast on our own podcast. (laughs) No, no, it's going to be great. It'll be like a Wikipedia thing where you've got links between all the episodes. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's true. It was around this time that the South Sea crisis happened. 
Kess, do you want to remember what the South Sea Crisis oh, was? Oh, the South Sea Crisis is when a bunch of men had just horribly profited from slavery and then they just assumed that they could keep buying shares and the shares would just keep going up in value forever and everyone would win forever and then obviously it crashed horribly and everyone lost lots of money. Except for Walpole, who was so slimy and so yeah. scheming that he managed to sell all of his shares at the peak. You're absolutely right. So the government put all of its chips into one basket, slave trading, Around 34,000 human beings were sold into slavery, but the company never actually generated the sort of money that the wildly inflated share prices required. And it turned out that a lot of people had been bribed into agreeing with it. In the ensuing political struggle, Walpole and Townsend took power, and Newcastle and Pelham followed closely. Mm. Newcastle himself lost £4,000 in the South Sea Company, which is about £700,000 today. Which was absolutely nothing to him. I mean, that's like a morning's coffee. I did actually read some of a very dry text called Newcastle, a Duke Without Money. Shout out to the author <laughs> of Newcastle, a Duke Without Money. But he has so much money. <laughs> I think he's dead. <laughs> yeah. So I'll go into it more later, but he did a, a, a very, very deep analysis of, a far too deep analysis of Newcastle's accounts. Yeah, hang on, a Duke Without Money? Hasn't he got like literally billions of pounds? Yes, I think the problem is that he spent even more. Oh my God. <laughs> Doing doing a wall pole, I think that's called. Yep. How did, how did he spend even more? He was like, oh, I'm really boring. I don't like having a private life. What was he spending all the money on? Elections. Uh, buying all the politics. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, in addition to losing money in the South Sea crisis, though, Newcastle was involved because he and Pelham and Walpole and Townsend had to then defend a lot of the really guilty parties mm -hmm. in order to save face. Isn't politics awful? Yes. Walpole and Townsend had made it. They were in the top, and Pelham and Newcastle were their numbers three and four. They were absolutely in there. Oh my god, and they were all related. They were all related. I remember this. And they were a very powerful partnership, the two brothers. But they would have quite different political experiences, because while Pelham was cozying up to Walpole and joining all sorts of committees and handling all the money, Newcastle was attending court with Townsend and taking his place on the world stage. In 1724, in the early years of Walpole's Robinocracy... Newcastle was appointed Secretary of State in the Southern Department. Ooh, so in charge of a lot of countries. Do you remember what the Southern Department is? It was everything that isn't Scotland. Yeah, so rather than having a Foreign Secretary for Foreign Affairs and a Home Secretary for Home Affairs, in those days, for some reason, they split it north and south, and then they just squabbled about the bits at home. <laughs> I don't really understand why, but it was, it was a very important job. One of the top jobs in the government... Townsend was more experienced and closer to Walpole and was the Northern Secretary, the more important post, at least at the time, because it included Hanover in uh, the yes. North. But Newcastle was essentially his protégé at this point. Mm. Quite a good position. The Southern Secretary. You'd pick being the Southern one, wouldn't you? Like if it were like, do you want to be in charge of like Spain and Italy or Hanover? It does sound a lot warmer. I'd go Spain and Italy. Yeah. You do realise that there's a war with Spain coming, right? I mean, we've been over this several times the now. The War of Jenkins' Oh, Ian. my God, no! <laughs> this guy again! Oh, why does he keep coming back? Which which are we going to stop talking about first? Walpole or the War of or Jenkins', Jenkins ear? ear? Specifically that one ear. Yeah. Which ear was it, left or right? Yeah, John, which ear was it? I honestly don't know. Oh. <gasps> we'll have to find out. I still haven't found out what happened to it. I had a little Google and I couldn't find what happened to the like, ear either. How has no, how has no one... Listeners, check your attics. If you have a yes. jar with an ear in it, do let us know. Surely they kept it. They must have done. 
Newcastle would hold the post of Southern Secretary for the next 24 years. Oh, my God. oh wow. And it was the time of his life. By the end of it, he was actually the longest serving Secretary of State of either of the two posts. Whatever. Ever. Ah. Reporting directly to the king, although also working for Townsend and Walpole, possibly not in that order, he would press British influence on foreign powers and colonies and stand up for British interests abroad. He was at the very pulse of political power. Sometimes he was left in charge of the government in Walpole's stead. Sometimes he would be taken on a visit to Hanover with the king. Townsend would retire about six years in to be replaced by William Stanhope, or Stanhope, as I've been mispronouncing it in many episodes up until now. Yeah, we've lost about half our listeners because of that. We've got some real Stanhope fans who just can't bear the fact we got it wrong. Well, the real Stanhope fans are going to love this because William Stanhope is the third Stanhope that we've mentioned in this podcast so far. But they're all cousins, so it's fine. So it doesn't matter. Stanhope was a distinguished diplomat, and while he didn't reach the heights of Walpole's inner circle... Stanhope and Newcastle seem to have operated more as a partnership than master and protégé. In this capacity, they were involved in the Treaty of Vienna, which shifted Britain's friendship away from France, choosing to ally with Austria instead. Newcastle also turned his hand to the gathering of information, something he seems to have been rather good at. <gasps> Hang on. Mm. Has he got like a spy network? So, the Whitehall Evening Post of the 3rd of December 1768, which is admittedly a long time later, described him as having better intelligence than Thurlow, the infamous secretary and spymaster to Oliver Cromwell. <gasps> Ooh. He, I was going to say he's got ears everywhere, but that might trigger oh, Jenkins. No. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly this was because he could spend money like nobody else. Oh yeah, that's just bribe people, can't you? Mm. Locally, he would spend his fantastic fortune to ensure Whig success in every election and personally control at least seven of the seats in the House of Commons through his land ownership and electoral expenditure. Oh, Newcastle had a famous reputation. Where his brother was calm and persuasive, Newcastle was touchy and flustered. Horace Walpole, who, let's be clear, was vile about everyone, <laughs> described him as a secretary of state without intelligence, a duke without money, a man of infinite intrigue without secrecy or policy, and a minister despised and hated by his masters, by all parties and ministers, without being turned out by any. I'm obsessed with Horace Walpole. He's just the Regina George of this time period. <laughs> and once again, he's proving that sentences in that era did not feel that they needed <laughs> yeah. to end within a reasonable amount of time. He's going to be like, Spencer Stanhope, too gay to function. <laughs> <laughs> Newcastle and Pelham were Walpole's closest allies, and this arrangement worked well for everyone for nearly two decades, even surviving the accession of George II, when they expected everything to change over. Yeah. Towards the end of Walpole's tenure, there was a bit of a falling out. An opponent of Walpole's named Lord Carteret had been exiled to Ireland at the beginning of Walpole's primacy, but he returned to lead the opposition in the Lords in 1730 and seems to have made an impression on Newcastle because both men wanted to be the kind of consummate diplomat who was manipulating affairs on the world stage. This southern department ain't big enough for the both of us, sort of thing. <laughs> Well, at this point, in 1737, Newcastle demanded that Carteret be appointed to the cabinet. So he seemed to actually want him on side. Keep your enemies close. Perhaps. Why do they all hate Carteret? Well, no, so he liked him. That was the thing. At this point, he wanted Carteret, even though Carteret was Walpole's enemy. But I get enemy. the sense that they're not going to get on in about five minutes. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> well remembered. <laughs> uh, or rather, well intuited. <laughs> Newcastle may have wanted to bring Lord Carteret in to replace Stanhope which could have put him in a stronger position with a less experienced fellow Secretary of State. Yeah. Right, because Stanhope was too gay to function, so I mean, <laughs> he wasn't very good at being Secretary of State. 
I don't know if we can have that running joke. <laughs> <laughs> I've decided. Um, He's dead. It's, it's, <laughs> it's fine. Pelham kept the peace between them, between Walpole and Newcastle, and Carteret was left in opposition. But this wasn't the only falling out, because something else was just around the corner. Any guesses what it was? The War oh, of Jenkins' Ear. Yes. Newcastle and Stanhope saw that a war with Spain was in the offing, but Walpole really didn't like the idea of war. Wars are expensive. People might check the books once in a while. Yeah, exactly. People get too distracted to be bribed as efficiently. Mm, Rubbish. True. This time, Newcastle won and war was declared. But it was a complete failure, at least at the start, and Walpole was dragged from office in January of 1742. Yeah. Newcastle quickly found himself in a back room, probably in the Kit Kat Club, at the negotiating table with the six leading Whigs to work out what should happen next. In a back room in the Kit Kat Club. Mm. I mean, I'm suggesting... <laughs> the sexiest the mutton pie is a <laughs> back room. It, it may have been, you know, the smoking room. Or the <laughs> <laughs> smoking hot room. <laughs> On the side of the government were Newcastle, Henry Pelham, and their ally, the Earl of Hardwick. On the opposition side were Carteret, Pulteney, that is, the Lord Bath of our episode four, <gasps> Lord yeah. Bath. and Samuel Sands. They agreed to compromise on Lord Wilmington, who wasn't at the table. But Newcastle got his earlier wish of Carteret as Northern Secretary. Yeah. This turned out to be a bit of a monkey's paw. Carteret swiftly took over. Great reference. Thank you. He became the dominant figure of the new ministry, only nominally led by Wilmington. Yes. Carteret was uninterested in domestic policy, preferring to be a master statesman diplomat on the world stage. So Newcastle handled the domestic policy, but Newcastle refused to allow Carteret to handle the foreign affairs of the southern department. So there was a lot of tension. Yeah. And there was a war going on, so that was a problem. Yes, bad time for it. At one point, Newcastle described the business of the southern province as being singly confined to the court of Turin. <laughs> that was all he had left. <laughs> he wasn't go of it. Carteret was also cozying up to the king, who even took him along to Hanover, leaving both of the Pelhams <gasps> behind. Oh my god, Pelham's uh, been replaced. Mm. Wilmington died, and Henry Pelham took the position of First Lord of the Treasury, despite a hurried application from Lord Bath. Mm. Oh. Tragic. Nobody else noticed. <laughs> Either the application or the death of Wilmington, I'm going to be honest. Oh, yeah. The War of the Austrian Succession wasn't going well, and Newcastle opposed Carteret at every turn, but Carteret had the king's support. In fact, something that I found really interesting about this is it's not just that Carteret had the king's support, it's that Carteret didn't care about anybody else's support because he felt that the king's was enough. And in fact, the commons hated him. <laughs> interesting. It also turned out that the country hated him because the war on the continent was not that far away from Hanover. And people were understandably worried that the king was placing the priorities of Hanover above those of Great Britain. Yes. In practice, it makes complete sense for Britain to pay Hanover to deploy troops because they're literally there. <laughs> yeah. And that way you don't have to get British soldiers involved. And what we have discovered recently is that the Brits were really struggling with force projection. In the War of Jenkins' Ear, they've been really struggling with wars in America because it was a really far away place. Why not get Hanover to prosecute the war on their doorstep and just pay them? But that's not how the people saw it. Oh, no, this was the king favouring his yeah. precious Hanover. Sir. When he had a more important country to deal with now. <laughs> the Pelhams were able to use this against Carteret and his faction, and they forced him out not long after Henry Pelham took the treasury in 1743. Carteret was replaced with William Stanhope, whom Newcastle saw as an ally against the meddling Carteret. 
over the next few years, the Pelhams consolidated their power despite the ongoing war. The War of Jenkins' Ear faded into the background of the War of the Austrian Succession. There was a Jacobite rebellion seeking to take advantage of the ongoing wars, but the Pelhams, ever the supporters of the Hanoverian Succession, defeated it handily, with an army led by the Duke of Cumberland. <laughs> William Stanhope resigned in protest over the handling of the war and was quickly replaced. Any guesses who by? Another Stanhope? Yep! Spencer oh, Stanhope. No. It was Philip Dormer Stanhope. The Earl of Chesterfield. He was my second guest. <laughs> Presumably there's a drawer of them somewhere. <laughs> Get out of the sun up. Next stand up. <laughs> one after that. I heard he made out with a hot dog. What? That's another Mean Girls reference. Oh, okay. no. It's another burn book thing. You can't sit with us. <laughs> the brothers won a general election and they brought the war of the Austrian succession to a lukewarm conclusion via negotiation. Sorry, I'm just... I'm just reveling in the momentary absolute bafflement on your face when I said he made out with a hot dog. <laughs> Having got themselves into a position of power, the brothers Pelham resigned from the government, forcing the king to reappoint them and humiliated Lords Bath and Carteret in the process. Listen to episode four for more information on oh, that. Oh, Lord Bath. That's all there is in episode four, really. Yeah, that's yeah. It. The embarrassment. <laughs> Newcastle took over the Northern Secretary position, and his brother Pelham was at the peak of his powers. It was Pelham's prime time again. Yay. Yay! Hold on, how come Henry Pelham became PM rather than Newcastle? So this is a really interesting thing, and it's basically because one of the things that Robert Walpole had done really well was from the Commons. Exactly. So he maintained the idea that you needed the Commons behind you. Which is a really interesting thing because you could have the exact same thing with the Lords where you could say, oh, well, it's important to have the Lords behind you. But actually he'd kind of set up this model where the Commons handled the money. And we talked about this earlier, actually, that we've just sort of passed the last time that they even considered handing the position of um, Chancellor of the Exchequer Chancellor of the Exchequer over to anybody who wasn't in the Commons. Well, it was picked up by um, Sands, who was one of the six people at the negotiating table. He was uh. in the Commons. So... It confirmed this thing that, that Walpole had going, that money was handled by the commons because they represented the taxpayers. And that then meant that it was quite hard for people to rule who weren't in the commons. And that'll come back to affect our prime minister in a bit because he's not in the commons. Yeah. Awkward. Mm. It is also a little bit of a, a retrospective us going, oh, well, we're going to say that Henry was in charge because he was in the commons. But it's very convenient to say, you know what, the person who was first Lord of the Treasury was Prime Minister. It works out quite well if you look at it like that. So that's what we do. In practice, there have been plenty of points before now where we've said, oh, but Carteret was really in charge or something. But yeah. it's easier to say, you know what, that's how it was. But yeah, so, so the main thing is about this idea of ruling from the commons. And that's something that Walpole did. And it's something that Henry Pelham did afterwards. Cool. The Newcastle System. So I've really struggled to find good information about what Newcastle did during the latter part of the premiership of his brother. That's the last six years from 1748 to 1754. They're completely glossed over by multiple books that I read. So clearly he wasn't up to much important stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that feels quite harsh. But what I could find suggested that he was quite keen on peace on the continent. He felt that the uneasy peace that followed the War of the Austrian Succession was only going to lead to another war in future, and that it was time to put in the effort to create a peace that would last. Which is a lovely idea, but it also seems that this principally involved a very intense alliance with Austria that the Austrians just weren't that keen on. <laughs> <laughs> Austria, be my bestie! Yeah. Austria's just like... No. So he was trying to sponsor an Austrian candidate to be 
I think it was something like Holy Roman Emperor, but in a very specific ceremonial sense. And the Austrians just didn't care. Mm. Austria's like, why are you so obsessed with me? Oh my God. <laughs> Small little island. <laughs> Stop it. At the same time, he was heavily criticised for paying attention only to Europe, when in the mid-18th century, there were other places where things were happening. Places like America. <gasps> mm, oh, a new, a new setting. A new world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that won't come up later. <laughs> no, it'll never catch on. <laughs> Lord North tugs his collar in Paris. <laughs> this desire for peace was referred to on Wikipedia of all places as the Newcastle system. But I couldn't find that term mentioned anywhere in any other book. Oh, I oh. trust Wikipedia. Or any book, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> That's six years of his life we've just crossed over. <laughs> <laughs> Newcastle, new job. <laughs> in 1754... Newcastle's brother, Henry Pelham, sadly passed away. It was a time of mourning for all. For, for me? For you? Yes. For oh, but, but everyone loved Henry Pelham. For George II. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, he was obsessed with him. But you know what he needed? <gasps> Did he need another guy who was exactly the same as the guy <laughs> he just had? Just with more titles. He needed the Duke of Newcastle. <laughs> Newcastle was the obvious person to take over the role of First Lord of the Treasury. But unlike his predecessors, he intended to lead from the Lords. Because he couldn't... Because he was one. The <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Whereas Walpole and Pelham had led from the Commons, and Wilmington hadn't really tried to lead anybody anywhere. And Lord Bath <laughs> hadn't succeeded. <laughs> yeah, so he needed a subordinate in the Commons. Oh, okay. That's smart. Mm. Mm. He tried both Henry Fox and Thomas Robinson... Neither was a particularly fruitful partnership, either because they weren't keen on being the junior partner or because they simply didn't really have the gravitas or whatever in order to be able to do it. He switched between the two, annoyed everyone at the process. In practice, the person that he obviously needed was the up-and-coming William Pitt. <gasps> oh. I have heard of William Pitt. Mm. That's uh, Pitt the Elder, Elder. if anybody yes. is uh, keeping notes. Yes. Oh, exciting. It's Bill Pitt. Mm. He's here. Unfortunately, the king absolutely detested William Pitt. Oh, for reasons that none of the books went into. Uh. I'll probably get to it in a later episode. Can you give us a choice of reasons? I'm hoping we'll know the actual reason in a few episodes' I want time. To choose a because reason. we're going to come back to this moment. We're going to make a choice for the moment, until we know the real reason, between A, a coffin-side brawl. <gasps> As opposed to the christening-side brawl. Yeah, exactly. So this is the oh, coffin you know, side. I love it. So, like, while Henry Pelham was being interned. Yeah. Oh. Um, B, interred. Interred. an accidental war with the French. Oh, yeah, hate happened. it when that happens. <laughs> or C, he was the one who'd run off with Jenkins' ear. <gasps> <laughs> That is the that that's, that's what it. it must be. That's where Jenkins' ear has gone. Yeah. Bloody William Pitt. It's in the William Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We'll go into more detail about him. And Jenkins' and ear. We'll go into more detail about how the king hated him in a future episode. But it simply wasn't possible to bring him into the government with the king not liking him. He just couldn't do it. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was also around this time that a twenty two year old lieutenant colonel ambushed a small French force in what we now call Pennsylvania, USA. Ooh. Does anyone want to guess the name of this lieutenant colonel? <gasps> a British lieutenant colonel. Well, at the time, British. Ooh, oh, my God, was it George Washington? It was George Washington! Oh, hey. George Washington! <gasps> I was going to say Colonel Sanders, but no. It was <laughs> <laughs> this was part of an ongoing rivalry between Britain and France in their colonial <gasps> expansions. He's here. 
but it was the spark that set fire to the kindling. Suddenly, there was a war with France. Wait, George Washington started the war with France. George Washington started the war with France. George! God's sake. (laughs) All of Newcastle's attempts at European peace were undone by an event that had happened in colonial America. This is so funny. Who could have predicted that? (laughs) Love George Washington, just like causing chaos yeah for more details see american president's totalis rancium where they describe this in detail in george washington's episodes which are some of the first episodes oh my god yep. yeah because it's clearly been so long since i listened to them that i completely <laughs> <laughs> incredible in the european theater the war began with a french fleet attacking the british fleet off the british held island of minorca the british were forced to retreat and they lost the strategically important island, which is also a really lovely holiday. <gasps> yeah, they lovely. lost Menorca. Yeah. No. Mm, oh, now it's Spanish. We could have had that. It was a humiliating defeat. Even more humiliating was the fact that we dispatched a relief force under Admiral Bing. How is it spelled? B-Y-N-G. Bing. That sounds Bing. That sounds Bing. Bing. Admiral Binge. <laughs> and the relief force didn't even engage the enemy. They just turned up and watched. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, no. oh Bing, no. Bing. What do you think being an admiral is about? <sighs> being an admiral. <laughs> there was uproar and heads were going to roll. Oh, I bet. Literally. How did George Washington <gasps> not get in trouble for this? But we'll cover that later because at this point, Newcastle resigned from the government. Oh. Oh. What? And that's it for today's episode, oh, everyone. No, what? You always leave it on such a cliffhanger. <laughs> Stop ending when people resign. <laughs> <laughs> he will be back for a, a second premiership but we'll be covering that in the next episode second. oh Ooh. yeah because he's already prime minister what mm. the hell oh he comes back wait he's what's going on what's happening stop resigning what, wh- why <laughs> what why is he going why is he coming back well he left because he just yeah. lost a colony so oh, yeah, that's it, embarrassing. it was awful that's fair. and he can't go on holiday to Menorca anymore he's lost his holiday home <laughs> true he i also I don't know this, but one of the reasons, and I may know more about this next time, but one of the reasons why he might have resigned could be because William Pitt was supposed to be the person who would be absolutely excellent at prosecuting a war. So he might have just gone, look, if you're not going to let me have the person that I need, then I give up. Yeah, fair enough. Did it work? When he came back into power, he did have William Pitt with him. (gasps) Spoilers. Ooh, exciting. exciting. Okay. I thought you were going to be like, I'm not telling you. I tricked you. (laughs) Fine, I'll cut it. No, (laughs) then I will forget it immediately. (laughs) Because next time when you listen to this episode. (laughs) And that's it for today. Thank you very much. Oh, how exciting. Another dramatic resignation by a Pelham. Mm. And America has appeared. Yes. Yeah, it was was there all along, you know, but. (laughs) Well, it's now it's it's now we're aware of it. George Washington has appeared and immediately caused trouble. Oh, my God. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. A bit of trouble that I wasn't aware of. I think that's going to be the last thing he does, though. I, I, don't I, think I can't imagine there'll be else. anything else. that. Surely. The name Washington has disappeared into history. And that brings us into... Dispatch Box. If you live in any of the Newcastles around the world, yeah. or indeed Menorca, um, <laughs> <laughs> let us know. Is there, a, is there like a big Newcastle statue? Yeah, probably not. You no. never know. Well, he retired pretty quickly. Yeah. Or um... if you live in Washington, D.C., I wonder who that's named after. Have we commemorated that that lieutenant who did the thing, <laughs> thing that one time with the French? Yeah, it's like some monument Didn't or something. Didn't he like align himself with the French? Yeah, yeah, but... they did. They did. Yeah. yeah, hold on. Welcome to Dispatch Box, our feature at the end of episodes where we look at some of the messages that people are sending into us. This week, we have some messages from fellow podcasters. Mm. Who we're very grateful for. Our friends and family. Mm. Oh, they're so lovely. They are. They're great. 
First up, Jerry of the Presidencies podcast, which is a podcast going into extremely interesting detail about the individual presidencies of the United States and all of the people involved in them. Wait, America separates from Britain? What? (laughs) Spoilers, John. Jerry responded to your comment about places named after prime ministers. Oh, fun. And he said that there is a bath, North Carolina, which is apparently (gasps) really quite tiny. Oh, interesting. There's a bath in North Carolina. Mm. I thought they only had showers. (laughs) Don't do your pitying laugh at me, Rob. (laughs) Sorry. It was named after the city of Bath decades before Pulteney became the Earl of Bath. Oh, Oh, no, that's rubbish. Alas. Mm. Poor Bath. He doesn't get anything. Well, I mean, for two days, he doesn't deserve anything, does he? I'm going to name my house after him. I thought you were going to say he got two days, as in that was his his <laughs> ten minutes of fame. No, I tell you what, I'm going to name my bath after him. <laughs> I right, should call next, it. Bath. I should call it Lord Bath. <laughs> the Lord Bath Bath. <laughs> I'll name the whole room and I'll call it the bathroom. <gasps> oh, that's very generous of you. Very generous. I might call maybe call my first child Bartholomew. <gasps> oh, that's sweet. It's a terrible name. Oh, Bart, little Bart. Yeah, I feel sorry for your child. <laughs> If you're listening and you're called Bartholomew... <laughs> we apologise. We're sorry. Yeah, we're sorry for you. We're sorry name. for you. <laughs> oh, John. Secondly, Ronnie from Settling the Score podcast said that he just finished the bio portion of Lord Bath's episode and he loved that the children's pamphlet had the length of Lord Bath's government down to the second. Yeah. You do have to wonder how they calculated that. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like it might have been made up, but you never know. No, surely not. <gasps> well, to be fair, it was presumably both ends of it involved a meeting that would probably have been recorded. Yeah, but down to the seconds a bit much. Yeah, I don't think they even had clocks that were that accurate at that point. And also, you know, like everything else about Lord Bath's premiership, it was a joke. (laughs) But I do like the idea that news didn't travel that quickly. So, for example, the, the American colonies, which were under our control at the time would have probably received the letters saying Lord Bath is Prime Minister and the letters saying Lord Bath is no longer Prime Minister. <laughs> on the on same the boat. Same boat. Yeah, exactly. That's so funny. <laughs> I like the idea that they got, the, they got the second one. They opened the second one first. <laughs> I'm like, like, wait, what? I like the idea that someone went to the boat and went, sorry, can I retract a letter that I sent? <laughs> I think we're also going to do one of our country shout-outs and given just how much we've talked about them this episode, I think we're all going to say a great howdy I can't do an American accent. Howdy, partner, to all of, sorry, all our American listeners. You're going to get much more involved because the next few decades are going to be quite America-heavy, I think. One word that I learned to say with an American accent while I was on the west coast of America was Twitter. Tw- Twitter. Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I cannot remotely do an American accent. It's okay, though. Twitter doesn't exist anymore. So I know fine. how to say lieutenant in an American accent. You, you just say lieutenant. Of course, it's lieutenant. I mean, that's lieutenant. not that's not the accent, though, is it? That's just lieutenant. Lieutenant. Oh God, I'm so sorry. I can't do it. At all. <laughs> it's okay, guys. I'll cut this so that you're the only one saying it. No, <laughs> Yay, that's oh, fun. No. Throw Cass under the bus. <laughs> also, our American listenership is our second biggest listenership now. It is, and it's growing. That's it exciting. Is. So, if you're listening to us in the US, thank you. Yeah. We hope that you are enjoying our charming british accents (laughs) (laughs) we are excited to to have you and do tell all of your other american friends about us absolutely and if there's anything you want to tell us about america its history the american perspective on on all this do write in either via email or on twitter bath in uh, north carolina yeah shout out to the people of bath north carolina (laughs) both of them (laughs) (laughs) and now we're going to have a quick trailer for another podcast 
This one is for Settling the Score, which is the podcast that Ronnie, who wrote in. We interrupt this fireball of a podcast to invite you to check out our incredible new show, Settling the Score. Hi, I'm Brody. And I'm Ronnie. And together, we're ranking every significant classical composer. From the 9th century to the now. From the Middle Ages to the Modern Age. From Bornell to Bach. From Bach to Beethoven. From Beethoven to Boulez and beyond. Join us on an epic step-by-step journey through musical history. In which every composer will submit their finest work to compete in the ultimate showdown to determine once and for all what is the greatest piece of music of all time really bro what what's the matter the greatest piece of music of all time as if there's even a way to prove that dude it's a rhetorical flourish (laughs) it's some kind of flourish all right i'll dial it back a little yeah uh mezzo forte please all right from rehearsal mark c one two three Settling the score. Available now on your favorite podcatcher. That's Settling the Score. Ronnie from Settling the Score is absolutely lovely. Yeah. And I have to say that the overwhelming thing that I have got from listening to Settling the Score is that he's a lot better at editing music into his podcast than we are. <laughs> we just sort of cram it in. <laughs> Ronnie, help it sounds yeah. gorgeous. I love <laughs> to be the me. We don't have the same kind of music in our podcast. Yes, we have to edit history into our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so far, they've covered a lot of the sort of proto-history of music, but I'm actually really excited because I think Gregorian chant is just around the corner. The hot new thing on the music scene. I know, I have a bit of a soft spot for Gregorian chant. Oh, of course. God. I can't believe you just said that unironically. But genuinely, it's really fun and I've learned so much about the history of music and these really interesting questions like, do you think that people were able to speak before they were able to make music? Yeah. What even is, is music? music? When birds sing a song, if it's the same song they've always sung, is it music? Look, it's too oh. early in the morning for this. <laughs> this kind of discussion. It's the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> Still too early. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. And I, I recommend settling the score heartily. Absolutely. And with that, this was the first premiership of the Duke of Newcastle. Next time, we'll be back with his return to power and later life. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at primetime underscore cast. We don't actually have a TikTok. Please don't try and follow <laughs> us on TikTok. Uh, write in at writeonwriteoff at gmail.com or find episode notes and more at primetimepod.com. And remember, never flinch, never weary, never despair. And subscribe to our podcast. <laughs>